The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter, verses 10, 11, and 12. Verses 10, 11, and 12 in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see and send unto Kedah and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory unto that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. Pass over the isles of Chittim and sea, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid, be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. Now, my friends, we have met together on what has come to be known as Remembrance Sunday. We have met together on the evening of Remembrance Sunday. And surely the question that is uppermost, and certainly should be uppermost, in the minds of uh, all thoughtful people on a day like this, is this. What is the matter with man? What is wrong with the world? Why are things as they are? Now I say that we can surely all take it as being agreed amongst us that that is the one big question that should be occupying our attention. We don't meet together like this because we've got nothing better to do, because there are not a thousand and one other things offering themselves to us. We don't come together just to turn our backs upon the problems and to sing hymns and to spend a certain amount of time together. We come because we are concerned about this great question of life and living, because we are concerned about the state of the whole world. And that, I say, must be the question. In this enlightened, sophisticated age, in this 20th century, from which so much was expected, and of which the poets of the last century vied with one another in prophesying its glories. Why has it turned out to be such a devastating century? Why are we met together thus on a day like this to think of two world wars already in this one century? And we look and see the nations and their rulers talking about possible war, considering what can be done to avoid it, and yet building up armaments which tend to make it possible and even likely. Now, that's the question. What's it all about? What's the cause of it? Now, that, I say, is the most relevant question that can be asked, and especially in a service such as this. There are many people who seem to think that Christianity is what they call sob stuff. We are familiar with a jibe that describes it as the opiate of the people. There are those who think that to come to a place of worship like this and to spend our time in this way and manner is nothing but a form of escapism. I trust before I'm through and before we are finished tonight that we shall see the utter folly of such a view. I'm here indeed to suggest and to put it to you that the only way in which the great problem confronting the human race at this moment can really be faced is the way in which we are doing on this occasion and, uh, and, and which we do Sunday 
by Sunday. Very well, I said, there's our question. What's the matter with the world? What's wrong with men? Why are things as they are? Now, my first comment is that there's nothing new about this question. It's a very old question. It's a question that men have asked many and many a time throughout the running centuries. Uh, part of our tragedy is that we don't seem to realize that and that we will persist in thinking that there's something unique about us because we're alive in the 20th century, but there isn't. Our big question, our big problem, is the problem that's been confronting the human race right away through all recorded history. And, of course, over and above that, it is the great question that is posed everywhere in this book, which we call the Bible. That's what the Bible is really about. The Bible is the textbook of life. It's the manual of the soul. It is the real history, the story of man in this world under God. The real business of the Bible is to deal with this question that is so urgently in the minds of men and women today. And according to the Bible, there is only one answer to the question as to why the world is as it is and as to what is wrong with man. And it is the answer that is given in this second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, those of us who meet here regularly have been considering this chapter already. This is, if I remember rightly, the seventh occasion on which we are looking at it. It is the first address that was delivered by this prophet Jeremiah to his own fellow countrymen and women at a time of great crisis, serious trouble in their long and checkered history. The children of Israel were very much as we are tonight. Everything seemed to be going wrong. There was a terrible threat of a great war. A mighty enemy, the Chaldeans, were arising and ready to attack them. Now, it's in that kind of situation that the prophet Jeremiah addressed the nation. And he's only one thing to say. He keeps on saying it throughout this long book of his. It's the same message as Isaiah had. It's the same message as all these prophets had. There's only one message in the Bible. And it is to say this, that the world is as it is, man is as he is, because he has rebelled against God, because he's fallen from God, because he's lost the favor of God. That's the answer. But, uh, as I've been indicating, that is worked out, it's, it's not merely made as a general statement, uh, it's broken up into its component parts. It's reasoned. It's argued out. We were looking at that last Sunday night where God said through the prophet, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. That means that God was prepared to reason it out with them. As a barrister pleads his case, so God was prepared to reason with the people and to plead with them. But, of course, what we've been seeing is this that they in their recalcitrance were quite impervious to all these messages, all these arguments, all these appeals. They turned their backs on God without a cause. They despised his great deliverance of them from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. They thought nothing of the land into which he'd brought them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They saw nothing in this great salvation that God uh, had given them. And here it is, you see, they, the people, and their priests, and their princes, and their prophets have all turned away from God. They're following other gods, Baal, and other gods of their own imagination and of their own uh, creation. Now the question that we have to ask is this. What is it in men that makes him do this? And I gave one answer to that question last Sunday night, as we found it in that ninth verse. It is this thing which the Bible calls sin. That's the trouble with men. All that he does in these different ways is ultimately be, to be traced to this terrible thing which is called sin. What is sin? Well, we saw last Sunday night that sin is something very deep. It's very profound. It isn't something on the surface of men's life. It isn't the mere negation. It isn't the mere absence of knowledge or of understanding. Oh, no. We saw that it is something that's down deep in the warp and woof of men's nature. It's something that makes men 
fail completely to learn the lessons of his own past history. Now, I mustn't stay with that tonight. We were looking at that last Sunday, but do let me, on this remembrance night, when everybody's tending to look back, let me indicate this thing in a hurried word. Isn't this one of the most amazing things about the human race, that it seems to be incapable of learning the lessons of history? Does war ever do any good? Has it ever done any good? Well, then, why are they still playing with it and toying with it? But, you know, mankind never learns that lesson. Mankind never learns the lessons of history. And we're reminded of that on a night such as this. In spite of what has happened, the nations are still thinking in terms of war and tying with war. It doesn't matter, you see, whether our cities have been bombed and many of our glorious buildings raised to the ground in every country. Still, they haven't learned the lesson. Now, what's the matter, I say? Now, you've got to face this question. What is it in men that makes him behave in this manner? Well, the answer is, it is something that is deep down in human nature. Sin has got into man's heart, into the very vitals of his being. But I lead you to a second aspect of this matter this evening, which is this. The perverse element in sin. The way in which sin as it were, twists men and perverts him and makes him do things which are utterly monstrous, things which really baffle our understanding. Now, that's the matter that is put before us in these three verses that we're looking at tonight. Now, you notice the dramatic way in which the prophet puts his point. That's why I read it twice to you. In order that the dramatic element, he stands back as it were. He looks at the nation and he says, What can anybody say? Look here, he says, let's, let's see if we can find anything like this anywhere. Let's uh, pass over the Isles of Chitting and see, make an investigation. Do they do things like that there? The answer is no. Well, very well. Ascend unto Kida and consider diligently. And see if there is such a thing. He picks out distant places, you see. He's, as it were, saying, I want to issue a challenge. Go anywhere you like, he says, anywhere in the known world. And see if you can discover any conduct and action and behavior which is in any way similar to the action of God's own people. He says, go and have a look. Make an investigation. And then he puts it like this. This is the essence of his charge. Can you find, he says, any one of these nations that has changed its God? No, he said, what makes it still more striking is this, which are yet no gods. Go around, he says, have a look at these other nations, and you'll find that they're worshipping different gods. One is worshipping this god, Baal, another is worshipping Ashtoreth. And others have got their gods. Well, what are these gods? Well, they're non-existent, of course. There's no such god as Baal. There never has been a god called Baal. Men decided uh, that there was a god to whom they gave the name Baal, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And others with their other gods. Then some of them made idols. They carved a form of a man or of an animal, of a beast, or as we read in Romans 1, creeping things. And they said, these are our gods. And they made temples to them and they took their burnt offerings and sacrifices and they bowed their knees before these gods and worshipped them in their temples. Now he said, when you go around and make your investigation, that's what you'll find. And, but he said, you'll find another thing, that they don't change their gods, they stick to them. They go on worshipping them. Has the nation changed their gods? He says, no, you'll never find an illustration of that. And this is what heightens it. They keep on worshipping those gods which are no gods. Gods of their own imagination. Gods of their own creation. They remain faithful to them. But my people have changed their glory into that which doth not profit. But then he goes on and says, Be astonished, O ye heavens, 
And be horribly afraid, yea, be very desolate, saith the Lord. What he's saying, you see, is this. He says this spectacle is almost incredible. There's something horrible about it. Be horribly afraid, be horrified, he says. Don't you feel that it's something shocking? Stand back aghast. These are possible translations of these words. Why? Well, he says, this is such a monstrous spectacle. The way that these people have turned from the living God. Now then, that's his dramatic way, I say, of bringing out this extraordinary element of perversity that is ever one of the chiefest characteristics of sin. Let me put this to you. Let's take a look at it for a moment in general. It's worth looking at this, you know, in general, in a kind of philosophical manner. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. Do you know, my friends, according to the Bible, the most extraordinary phenomenon in the world tonight is man himself, man in sin. There is no other phenomenon in the whole universe that is comparable to man. Look at the whole world, look at the whole of creation. You will find nothing so foolish in it as man in sin rebelling against God. How? Well, let me put it like this to you. Sin is that which makes a fool of men. Sin is that which turns men into a kind of monstrosity. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Yea, be very desolate, saith the Lord. At what? Well, at man rebelling against God and sinning. Man's a spectacle. Man's become a fool. Man's become a monster. In what ways? Well, in these ways. Sin, you see, introduces into men this extraordinary element of contradiction. Isn't that the thing that's most obvious about men today? What you make of men? Well, if you examine men truly, if you follow this line of investigation pressed upon us by uh, the prophet, uh, you'll be impressed above everything else by this extraordinary paradoxical element in man. He's a mass of contradictions. Look at, at what I mean. Look at men on the surface and you'll say, how great is man. And of course there is a real greatness in man. Look at his wisdom. Look at his understanding. Look at his knowledge. You can't deny that to men. You can't deny that to the 20th century men. Look at the grand discoveries he's made. Look at his genius and his brilliance. In all these scientific investigations and discoveries, look at the phenomenal advances in medicine and in the treatment of human sickness and disease. Look at the way in which man has been able to explore the distant parts of the world. This is genius. Man is a great being. No animal's ever been able to do anything like that. An animal just lives according to his instincts. He's governed by his desires. He's got a kind of mechanical law within him that makes him do what he does. But man rises above it all. And he has this great brain, this great knowledge, this understanding, and he's searched out mysteries, and he's able, even in a theoretical manner, to think in a most extraordinary way. That's all true about men, isn't it? Look at the achievements of the human race on the one hand, and you've got to stand back in amazement and say, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. That's what Shakespeare said about him. And if that was true in the Elizabethan era, how much more so now? Man, he's an amazing creature. But oh, alas, I can't leave it at that, can I? That isn't the whole truth about men. There's another side to men. What's the other side? Well, it's the side that you see in the world round and about you. Here is man with all this astounding genius and ability, but look at his world. Look at the misery. Look at the shame. Look at the sin. 
Look at the evil. Look at the tension. Look at the wars. Look at the destruction in the wars. This mass destruction. Look what he's proposing to do. Now it's the same. I'm talking about the same person. I'm talking about the same individuals. I'm talking about this great person that was that has searched into the depths and into the mysteries. There he is, but here he is also. He's glorious. He's infamous. He's wise. He's a fool. He's above the animals. He does things that animals never do. He's higher than the animals. He's worse than the beasts. Isn't that the truth about men? You see, as Jeremiah says here, man is a spectacle. He's a phenomenon. Be astonished, O ye heavens, and be horrified at this. Be horribly afraid and be very desolate, saith the Lord. But that is it. That is men as we see him tonight. This extraordinary element of contradiction. This paradox that is in him. And what heightens is, is, it is this. That sin not only makes men like this a fool and a spectacle and a kind of monstrosity. Oh, what heightens is it is this. That he is a fool most of all. In the matters that are of gravest and of greatest concern. It is when you come to the ultimate questions that you see the folly of men at its greatest. Now that is, I say, what heightens the paradox. Not just that he's a fool at certain odd points where they don't matter. No, no, it's much worse than that. And that is why this expression is right. It is something at which the heavens ought to be astonished. That man who is so marvelous in so many respects, when you really come down to the question of life and living, becomes an unmitigated fool. That's the phenomenon of men in sin. That's the thing that's most evident in the world tonight. That is what makes the heavens horrified and should fill us all with a sense of amazement. That is why we should all be aghast. But are we? Are you amazed and aghast at men in the 20th century? My dear friends, if we are not, we must be horribly blind. There must be something preventing our seeing things as they are. Because this is the truth about us. Let me put it in another way to you. This element of sin in man, you see, does another thing to him. It makes him reverse what he does. Not only what he is, but what he does in these other spheres. I mean this. In most uh, spheres in his life, in his business, in his profession, and all the rest of it, man is generally characterized by thought, by taking care, by exercising reason, by being cautious, by taking forethought. Oh, you know many men of whom this is true, don't you? You know men in professions, the great learned professions, Men in business, men in industry. Put them onto their job and those are their great characteristics. Wisdom, thoughtfulness, care, caution, making sure that they're taking the right action, forethought. We'll all agree that those are their characteristics. But you know, when you come to these vital matters, when you come to man in his relationship to God, what you find? Prejudice. He doesn't stop to think. He doesn't really give his mind to it. No, no, he jumps to conclusions. He starts with a ready-made idea. He knows everything before he's read a word. He's inherited it from somebody else, and he repeats it like a parrot. What's he governed by? He isn't governed here by the same element of calm, detachment, quiet, cool investigation, Caution before arriving at a decision. He says, rotten nonsense, stuff and nonsense. The opiate of the people, some stuff. Oh, all right for women and children. Isn't that how he speaks? What I'm trying to say is this, you see, that there are men who would never dream of taking a great business decision without saying, let me have the relevant data. Bring me every, every memorandum you can lay your hands on. Tell me, have we ever tried this before? Put all the evidence before me. He'd have it sifted, he'd have it collated. He said, I can't arrive at a decision before I am aware of all the facts. Quite right. 
But you know there are many men and we've all known them and we still know them who reject Christianity in total. They've never read the Bible in their lives. They display their ignorance of it if you have a discussion with them. They don't even know their New Testament. They don't know their Gospels. Here they are saying there's nothing in Christianity, but they've never investigated it at all. Now, this is the element I'm bringing out, you see. This is the supreme tragedy of man. This is where he becomes a monster. That in this matter, which matters above everything else, he throws caution to the winds. He throws reason out through the window. He jettisons his own highest faculties. And he speaks like a fool. Prejudice is in control. You can hear them on the wireless and on the television almost whenever you like. If you went to them in their normal avocations and began to produce your theories, they'd smile at you and they say, No, look here, my friend, I don't want your theories. I want facts. And yet when it comes to their whole view of men and of life and of death and of eternity and of God, they base their whole position on nothing but theories and suppositions. You hear them saying dogmatically that evolution is a fact. But it isn't a fact. And they know it isn't a fact. It's nothing but a theory. But they base their whole position on it. And on a mere theory, God is dismissed. Christ is not needed. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid, yea, be very desolate. Saith the Lord. There it is in general. But let me ask you to bear with me for a moment when I work it out with you in particular. So far I've been looking at it merely from the standpoint of thought in and of itself. From a kind of philosophic view of life. And it's important we should do that. But when you come to the particulars you'll see it still more clearly. What does this extraordinary condition of men make him do in detail? Well the first thing it does is this. It makes him reject the highest honor that is offered him. In every other realm and department, men not only doesn't reject honors, he's very ready indeed to receive them. I'm not criticizing that. All honor to a man who does that. If a man has done well, he deserves to be honored. The laborer is worthy of his hire. I'm not here to say a word against a man being honored by his king or his country, by the profession he belongs to, or by society. It's well that that should be done. And men like that. And men are pleased with that, and rightly pleased with it, and have a legitimate sense of pride. But you know, when it comes to the greatest and the highest honor of all, Men reject it without a thought, without consideration, and think that they're clever in doing so. This is how the prophet puts it. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? No, they haven't. But my people have changed their glory. What is their glory? Well, that is how the Bible often refers to God himself. The glory. Why? Well, because God dwells in the glory. God's essential being is glory. The ultimate attribute of God is glory. What is glory? Well, I can't describe glory. No man can describe glory. Had I the pen of a ready scribe or the imagination of an angel, I couldn't describe the glory. We read about the very angels in heaven that all they do in the presence of the glory is to veil their faces and they bow down. The essence of God, I say, is glory. It's greatness. It's utter, absolute perfection. It is holiness. It is light in which there is no darkness at all. It is omniscience. It's omnipresence. It is omnipotence. That is God. The almighty God. 
You see the prophet's point. These men, he says, in these other nations, they've made their little gods. They're not gods. They've got no being. They've got no life. You remember how the psalmist ridicules them? He says that, look at their gods. He says, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, they can't handle. They've got feet, but they can't move. You have to carry them about. Yet men worship them. And they don't change their worship. They don't turn away from them. But here is the nation of Israel. Here are people who ought to know better. They've turned away from the glory. Their glory. Their own God. The God who made them. The God who is over all. The everlasting God. And you know, my friends, that's precisely what the human race is doing this evening. And I say this is to turn your backs upon the highest and upon the greatest honor conceivable. What is it? Well, it is to know God. Man was meant for a knowledge of God. God made man for himself. He meant him to be his companion. That is what God intended man to be. That's the biblical picture of man as God created him. He was meant to know God. He was meant to have fellowship with God. He was meant to have his life guided by God. He was meant to dwell under the sunshine of God's blessings and of God's face. That is what man was destined for. And there is no greater glory, there is no greater honor than that. Then that man should be the companion of God, should be on speaking terms with the eternal, should have access into the presence of God, and his whole life, I say, be lived under the benediction of the Almighty, the glorious one, the glory. But man turns away from it as if it was nothing. He was so interested in honor and glory. Isn't interested. As our blessed Lord put it, when he was here in this world, he said, How can ye believe which receive honor one from another and receive not the honor that cometh from God only? Be astonished, O ye heavens. The world is as it is tonight because it is rejecting the greatest glory and the greatest honor of all, and that is to live a life under God and with God and under the smile of God. Nay, more I can go further. Man was made in the likeness of God. He was made in the image of God. He had certain qualities about him that are characteristic of God himself. But he rejected that. That's the glory that he's turned away from. Nay more, he's offered it again in Christ. What is this Christian gospel? It's this, my friend, that though you and I have lost the glory, we can receive it back. We've lost the image. It's marred. It's defaced. Yes, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be born again. Receive life anew through the Holy Spirit. And you know, the glory will return. In him the tribes of Adam burst more blessings than their father lost. But to the world it means nothing. The world isn't considering this tonight. The world is living as it is. Why? Because it has no conception of man in his real glory. It has lost this view of man as made in the image of God standing upright, endowed with an original righteousness, the friend, the companion of God. It's because men and women know nothing about this and dismiss it with ridicule and scorn that their world is as it is. They have forsaken their own glory. The glory of the only God. But secondly, it makes him do another thing, and this is it, the second detail. It makes him careless and reckless about his highest and his best interests. Have you ever considered that? That was the trouble with these children of Israel. They were not only turning their backs upon the glory. They were not, dis not only displaying their unutterable ignorance of the majesty and the greatness of God. They were throwing away the possibility of redemption and deliverance. They were utterly negligent, I say and reckless about their own best and highest interests. 
And you see, that's the whole trouble with this world tonight. It's that, that's where this contradictory element comes in in men. I've been referring to his great learning, but let me remind you of something else. Look how men cares for and tries to look after his own interests. He's never done it so successfully as he is doing it at the present time. Uh, what do I mean? What are these interests? Well, here are some of them. Look at the trouble men is taking about his own safety. I know in spite of the folly and the deaths on the road, men's making great efforts to preserve uh, the safety of his own life. He's concerned about safety against war, civil defense, air raid shelters, all these things. Men is very concerned about the safety, the well-being of his physical being. Look at his interest in health. And in preserving his health, look at the millions that are rightly being spent upon hospitals and upon new medicaments and upon fostering research and all these things. This is very right. Health, how important it is. A man can't go far without his health. He may be a genius, but if he loses his health, he's not going to make a great career. Health is absolutely essential, says men. So he pays great attention to his health. The same with his wealth. Insurances, banking, all these things, they're absolutely right. A man who doesn't do these things is a fool. Preparation for a rainy day. Look at the interest man takes in his own comfort. Look at the interest he takes in knowledge, I say, and in education, in improving his mind. He's concerned about himself in all these varied ways. He says, these things are so important to me. And he's never been so assiduous as he is at the present time in trying to look after his interests in all these realms and departments. But be astonished, O ye heavens, and be horribly afraid, yea, be very desolate at this part. Well, that man who is so careful about his body, his physical frame, man who is so careful about his health and about his comfort and about prolonging his life a few years in this passing world of time, man who goes out of his way so much to make these provisions with his welfare states and schemes and all the rest. When you come to the highest interest of all, which is the interest of the soul. Doesn't give it a moment's thought. Pays no attention to it whatsoever. He's not interested. He don't indeed feel that you're insulting him when you invite him to sit down for a moment and stop and think and to ask himself, what of the soul? What of your relationship to God? What of that spirit that's in you that's bigger than life and the world? He doesn't do it. He spends even this one day out of seven instead of reading the Bible and meditating about his soul in reading the filth of the law courts and all the nonsense of these entanglements and immoralities that are so much in evidence at this present time. Be astonished, O ye heavens, that men can be such a fool, that he can have such an interest in the body and no interest in the soul, such interest in the externals, but never a thought of that which is innermost, the citadel of his being, the thing that really makes him man, that he's a living spirit. Never thinks about his soul. This is the paradox of man. This is the monstrous element in man in sin. He's not only not interested in the soul, he's not concerned about its well-being now. You know, there's a type of life that can be lived even in this present world that is a glorious life. It's depicted in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. What a life, poor in spirit, mourning on account of sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker. There's a life that is possible now. There is a life possible to men even in this veil of tears, in this world of sin, a life given by God in Christ, the life of the saints, the noblest souls that have ever trod the face of this earth. Do you know, my friend, it's possible to every one of us tonight. It's offered us freely in Jesus Christ. But man isn't interested in it. Though his world is on fire, 
He wants to read these foul novels. He wants to waddle in the mire of the gutters of life. He wants to spend his time in sex. With his world on fire, I say, and the end at hand at any moment. He is not interested in the soul and in this noble life of glory that's possible to the soul. He is utterly reckless and negligent about the highest and the best interests of his own life. And when you carry this on beyond this life and this world, you see the monstrosity still more. Modern men, I'm addressing you. You who are insuring against illness. You are insuring against accident. You are insuring that you'll be buried even. Do you ever stop to think as to how you're going to die? You've got to. You can't escape it. This isn't to frighten you. This is just to put a fact before you. It's an absolute certainty that every one of us has got to die. Have you ever thought of it? Have you ever prepared for it? Have you ever rehearsed it? Have you any idea what you're going to feel like when you're on your deathbed? Have you ever visualized yourself the other side of death? What do you know about that? Oh, you say, the spiritists are saying this and that. Are you prepared to risk everything on that? Would you do that in your business? Would you do that in your profession? On these spoofs and spooks. Are you prepared to risk it all on that? Here I've got solid evidence for you. It is appointed unto all men once to die. And after death, the judgment. That's all I'm certain of. Is that every one of us born into this world will on some future day Stand before God. Is there anything that compares with that in importance? But men and women don't think about it. They regard this as morbidity. They say it's shameful that a man should be talking about death. And yet they see murder and death all around them. And see the dread possibilities that may descend upon us at any moment without a warning. And yet they'll never give it a thought. It's madness, my friends. Oh, be astonished, O ye heavens. Is there anything like it anywhere? Man's the biggest fool in creation. Animals don't behave like that. The ox knoweth his master's crib. The swallow and the crane and the turtle know the time of their returning. There is a kind of wisdom in nature. Nature obeys the laws of its being. It's only man who is an unutterable fool. So wise where it's comparatively unimportant. So damnably foolish where it is vitally important and his eternal destiny depends upon it. That's the phenomenon of man in sin. Man's a fool. He's a monster. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at the way in which man who seeks so much glory refuses the real glory. Man who is so careful about himself is so utterly careless in the highest and the noblest matters. Oh, and the very depth of the thing is seen here. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They don't want the glory that God can give. The glory of fellowship with God and communion with him. The glory of becoming children of God and joint heirs with Christ. New creatures following Christ. Living this noble Christian, they're not interested in that. Well, what are they interested in? That, he says, which doth not profit. Idols. Look what they're worshipping tonight. They don't make idols as they used to in the old days, but they're still worshipping them. Great name, great wealth, great position. These are the idols of the modern men. What are they living for? That which does not profit, says this man. What's he talking about? Animal nature. Man's not interested in the soul, but he's very interested in the body. You see how this book's selling? What in the name of heaven makes anybody want to read it? What's that? How's that going to help you? How's that going to help you to live? How's it going to help you to die? How's it to help you to make a better world of this? But they're all after it. Why, well, you see, that's their interest. It doesn't profit. No, no, but it appeals to our baser, lower natures. We're living the life of animals. 
The scripture is quite right. Did you notice it in that first chapter of Romans? They not only do the same, says the author, but they have pleasure in them that do them. They not only do wrong things themselves, they enjoy it. And they like to read about others doing the same thing, and they talk about it. And they rush to the cinemas to see more and more of it. The thing is horrible, it's foul, but they delight in it. They take pleasure in them that do it. And the same Apostle Paul, as I say, the similar description in writing to the Philippians. Oh, he says, there are people whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Isn't that London tonight? Paul wrote it, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. But isn't it true tonight? Whose God, what is their God? Their belly. What they're going to eat. The sumptuous repasts. The great dinners. Have you noticed the prominence of dinners? The eating and all the delicacies and all. When the world, I say, is on the verge of disaster and doom and the end. What are they doing? Eating, feasting, drinking. Whose God is their belly. What they can put into it. The food and the drink. And whose glory is in their shame. They boast of the number of women they've seduced. They boast of their own immoralities. It's turned into something marvelous and beautiful and wonderful. Glorying in their shame. That's what we are witnessing today. What a creature is man. Be astonished, O ye heavens. That man with all his genius and ability is at the same time glorying in his shame, proud of his iniquity, boasting of his own wretched moral failure. What a terrible thing it is. They have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. But oh, what makes it so sad is this. That while man is doing all this, he's unaware, I say, of that other glory that is possible to him. You see, that's why Jeremiah wrote. That's why God raised him up and sent him to address the children of Israel. This was his message. He said, it's not too late. You're in a mad position. You're showing your perversity. You're doing something that none of the other nations do, even with their own gods, which are no gods at all. You've forsaken your own glory for that which is of no profit. There's nothing to be said for you. You're unutterable fools. You deserve to be blasted out of existence. You deserve to be damned. But that isn't what he said to them. He said, you know, in spite of it all, it's still not too late. If you but realize this, if you but repent, if you but return to God, it's still not too late. God had sent Jeremiah to call them back at the eleventh hour, while there was still time, while the gate of mercy was still open. And all they needed to do was to acknowledge their unutterable folly, their indescribable monstrosity. They had but to return to God, acknowledging and confessing their sins. They had but to cry out for mercy and compassion, and God would forgive them, and God would keep their enemies at bay, and God would smile upon them as he had at the beginning, and God would say, you are my people. Every time they went back to him, he received them. Then they sinned again. And then they came back, and then he received them again. Oh, he is plenteous in mercy. He is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us, there are exceeding riches in his grace. <coughs> Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And my dear friend, that is my simple message that I'm privileged to put to you this evening. It matters not how far away you may have strayed. It matters not how hopeless your life. It matters not how black your sin. It matters not how foul your life has been. 
I have the authority of the Almighty God for saying, if you but see it, if you but recognize it, if you but go back to him, acknowledging it and confessing it, telling him that were he to deal with you in righteousness, you would have no hope at all but hell, but casting yourself upon his everlasting mercy. And you know, in spite of all, he will tell you that he so loved you, in spite of all you've been and all you've done, that he sent his only begotten son into this world to die for you, to take you a punishment, to receive what you so richly deserved for your folly, for your madness. He will tell you that Christ has borne your punishment and that he therefore forgives you freely. He'll give you new life. He'll give you a new start. He'll give you a new outlook. He'll make you a new man, a new woman. He'll adopt you into his family. He'll make you his own child. He'll lead you while you're still left in this world. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let wars come. Let the bombs burst. Let hell be let loose. God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And at the end, he will receive you unto himself into the everlasting glory. And even this old body of yours will be changed and will be glorified and you'll be like Christ and live under the sunshine of God's face throughout the running ages of eternity. That's all you have to do. Today, the gate is open. Today, while it is still today, the offer remains. God's mercy has not ended. Recognize the truth about all of us as we are in sin. This thing on which the heavens are called upon to be astonished and to be amazed. You have but to acknowledge it and confess it. You have but to receive this offer of free pardon and forgiveness and new life and adoption into God's family. And you will become a new creature. And you know what will happen? It will no longer be the case that anybody can look at you and say, look at him, be, O ye heavens, be astonished. That isn't what will happen then. I can tell you what will happen. There will be joy in heaven amongst the angels of God at what has happened to you. For there is joy amongst the angels of God over one sinner that repented. The heavens that were astonished at men in his unutterable folly before are now ringing with rejoicing. Fill with praise. Repent, believe, receive the honor and the glory that come from the only God. Amen.